one more guest sermon until Greg gets back. And the goal for this sermon is to like do kind of an okay job, but to set the bar middle so that when Greg comes back and preaches, he gets way over that bar and you guys are so happy to have him back. So this is just going to be kind of a mediocre sermon for Gray's sake. I'm doing it because I love Gray. Um, as was mentioned earlier, we are planting in Queen Creek. And for those of you that don't know where Queen Creek is, as somebody said earlier this morning, where is Queen Creek? It's pretty much in New Mexico. <laughs> but really, it's about 35 minutes southeast of here. If you know where Mesa Gateway Airport is, we're just to the east of there, just south of there. And it is a bustling city now. We have a Red Robin, so that's good. We have a Trader Joe's, and we make it a Costco. So we are up and coming. And the church has been really supportive. As you know, planting in 2020 in February is probably not the best time to plant a church when COVID is around the corner. But the Lord has been faithful to us. Uh, he is helping us grow uh, numerically, financially, spiritually, all, all the measures that you're hoping for a church plant. We are, are checking those boxes. But if you would pray for us, we are having a meeting this afternoon. So we meet in the afternoons at 430. Uh, after the service, we're having a meeting and, and kind of talking about what direction are we heading and how, what do we need to do to get there. So the goal for any church planter is for their church that, to no longer be what's called a mission church, which means you don't have your own leadership. And the goal is to become what's called a particular church, which means you have your own ruling elders, like New Valley has their own ruling elders. So we're going to plot the course of what needs to happen for us to get there. What benchmarks do we as a church need to meet so that we can become a particular church? So just pray for a meeting this afternoon. And with that, uh, let me pray and let's begin. Lord, we thank you for uh, time to gather, to gather together as uh, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we know that you are present here, and I ask that as we look at this text, that you would help us to, to understand that you would help us to, to get a better picture and catch a glimpse of really who you are. Pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, honestly, how many of you knew what a PPE was or personal protection equipment was before March of 2020? Some of you probably did, but I was ignorant to it, and I had no idea what an N95 mask was. I didn't even, like, I thought all masks were the same. So, We've learned, at least I've learned over the past year or so, that there's this category of equipment, personal protection equipment, that's meant to protect us from the unseen, from viruses and, and other illnesses that are out and about. And what we have here in this passage is David is calling out to his God and is asking for protection. And as People who are following the God of the Bible, God offers us protection. He offers protection for his people. And David here, he's in a situation where, where he doesn't feel safe. He, he feels like there are enemies abounding around him. And as we uh, have looked, and you probably have seen in these Psalms, David often is under attack. Whether it's something of his own doing, sinning, or it's something uh, of his enemies that are trying to, to knock him off as a king. He constantly feels under threat. So David's in this situation where, where he feels unsafe. He feels like enemies are coming against him. 
and he calls out to God. And that's, that's the first step. He calls out to God. He says, God, give ear to my words. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. Notice David's prayer. He's not using buttoned-up language. He's not uh, uptight or stilted. He's groaning out to God. He's crying out to God. This groaning word, it's like this visceral response. It's an embodied prayer where David is pouring his whole being into reaching out to God. I think sometimes for me, my, my prayers, and I don't know if you're this way, they get kind of stilted, formulaic. Um, David doesn't do that. And as you've been probably seeing in the Psalms, as you guys have been going through the Psalms as we have at our church, these prayers are very real and they're very raw. David says, God, hear the sound of my cry. I am crying out to you. You just picture the, the, these salty tears running down his cheeks as he's, he's calling out to God, asking for help, asking for God to answer him, asking for protection. I think sometimes when, when we consider approaching God, let's look at the language that, that David uses here. He calls God a king and also his Lord. So David is acknowledging two things. One, that that God is powerful, but also that God is personal. First, he says, my king. God is a ruler. He is sovereign. He is over all as a king. He's in charge of the world. David acknowledges that power, which is why he has confidence when he prays them. He knows that if God wants to change the situation, God can change the situation, but also note the personal nature of it. It's not just a king or the king or a God or the God. It's my king and my God. David is announcing that he has a personal connection to the God and king of the universe. Now, sometimes if we introduce somebody that's close to us, we'll say something like this. If I were to bring a one of my children up here, I'd say, hey, this is my son. I wouldn't say, this is the child, or this is a child. When I introduce my wife, Elizabeth, I say, this is my wife, Elizabeth. And sometimes we kind of bristle and we think that's like ownership or it's showing authority over something. I think it's more indicating a personal nature to the relationship. I'm with this person, and that's what David is doing here. This isn't some distant deity who's far off and and doesn't care about the the concerns of of everyday life. This is my God. This is my king. We are in a a connected, covenantal relationship where God has promised to to free me from my sin. God's promised to redeem me. And I walk in faith through that. So there's this personal nature to hear. And David is emotional about it. So we balance the king, God who's sovereign, God who's powerful and personal when we approach him. And that's a difficult line to walk, but there's a great example of it in the show Providence Courtroom, I think it's called. So, all right, are are we safe? Do do we need a raft or something? Do we have life jackets in the building? Oh, gosh. All right, (laughs) we better start praying right now. 
So uh, Judge Capria, who is, it's a real show. It's not like Judge Judy that, that's made for TV. This is a, a real courtroom with real cases. And what happens is he's kind of this benevolent judge. And in this one particular situation, there was a single mom, Andrea Rogers, and the single mom approaches the judge, and she had recently had some tragedies. One of her sons had passed away, and she, for whatever reason, has just racked up tickets. And the debt to her was too much. It was $400. So she is pleading with the judge, being respectful, being reverent towards him, but also emotional, saying, this is too much. I can't handle it. And the judge is, is nice and kind and gentle, and he says, okay, I'm going to reduce your fine to $50. And we would think, oh, that's great. But with tears streaming down her face and a trembling voice, she's saying, that would leave me with $5 in the bank. And the, the judge, his heartstrings are pulled and he decides to eliminate the debt. But it's that approach where I think we can go to God. We can be real and honest with him, but also reverent towards him. Real and honest. God already knows your thoughts. Okay, God is sovereign. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. So he already knows if you're angry. He already knows if you're sad. He knows if you're depressed. He knows what you're going through. So be honest with him when you approach him. Be real with him. That's what David's doing here. And then we see here that, that this takes place in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Now, if you have a, a Bible with you, you may see that there is a, a little uh, three on top of the I prepare a sacrifice for you. Do you guys see the little three there? Okay, that is the, the Bible translators telling you that there's another alternative translation. So, Real quick, what it could be is either I prepare a sacrifice for you or I prepare a prayer for you. The Hebrew word is actually I prepare for you. So the translators are trying to figure out, okay, what's David preparing? Is it a prayer or is it a sacrifice? I think prayer makes the most sense, so that's what I'm going to go with, just so you know. And what we have here is David taking time in the morning and calling out to God, reaching out to God. <clears throat> really trusting that Lamentations 3.23 is real, that <clears throat> your steadfast love is new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord my God. So this kind of idea of a new day, a new opportunity, and David is starting out his morning with prayer. Starting out his morning being in the presence with God, which is a good thing to do, by the way. I encourage you, if you're not in, in the habit or pattern of, of spending some time in the morning just communing with God, whatever that may look like for you, that may be just as simple as praying the Lord's Prayer, it may be a, a reading this psalm and just making the, these words your prayer, your words. I encourage you to, to take time in the morning to pray so that we are aligning our hearts our wills with God's will. So David then moves from this, this prayer of, of real and raw emotion to really considering God's character. He says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil men not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before you. You hate all evildoers. Destroy those who speak lies. 
The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Seems kind of harsh, right? I mean, look at all these words David is using about God. God doesn't like wickedness. Evil can't dwell with him. Boastful should not stand, and you hate all evildoers. What's your take on that? When you read those words, why is David making that confession about God? Consider the situation. David is in a situation where he is facing real, physical enemies. And and he could be in a situation where he wants to enact vengeance on his own. Where he wants to take justice into his own hands. And and instead of seeking to, to avenge, he seeks revenge. But David is really trusting in God's character, saying, God, I know how you feel about evil. I know that evil and sin is really an intrusion of the way you created the world, that you created the world good, and our sin has caused it to have sin, death, all these things as a result of the fall. But David is also acknowledging that God's going to do something about it. That's why he's calling out to him. God's going to do something about it so that David doesn't have to take vengeance or revenge into his own hands. In other words, if we believe in God's justice, it liberates us to not take justice into our own hands. This is what Tim Keller says in his book, The Reason for God. Can our passion for justice be honored in a way that does not nurture our desire for, for blood vengeance? Mirzla Bolv says the best resource for this is a belief in the concept of God's divine justice. If I don't believe that there is a God who will eventually put all things right, I will take up the sword and will be sucked into the endless vortex of retaliation. Only if I am sure that there is a God who will right all wrongs and settle all accounts perfectly do I have power to refrain. Some of us have had injustice done to us. Some of us have seen injustice done to others and have been powerless to stop it. So how do we, as believers, follow Paul's admonition in Romans 12, which says this, Romans 12, 19 through 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How do we do that? How do we love our enemies and pray for those that persecute us? We believe that God is just, that God is good, and that God ultimately will take care of sin and evil done to us. David acknowledges that. But then he not only acknowledges God's character, but he also acknowledges God's goodness. David leaves here from destroying to verse 7, where he says, But I... Through the abundance of your steadfast love will enter your house. David realizes that he doesn't get to enter God's presence in his own stead. David can't do it by himself. David needs the abundance, the overflowing of God's steadfast love so that even he can be in God's 
presence. This idea of abundance is this abounding, overflowing. So you think of a child who, who fills uh, root beer in a cup and doesn't stop all the way, but it bubbles over and spills over the cup. That's the picture of this abundance of God's steadfast love. Steadfast love is a love that, that's permanent, that never ceases, never, never dwindles, never fails. It's a love that is gracious. It's a love that, that means we don't deserve it. David didn't earn it because David's a good guy, that David's going to be a great king or is a great king. God in his grace poured out his steadfast love on David. And it's because of that that David can be in God's presence. This idea of steadfast love is grace, grace, grace. And that's why we can be here in God's presence now. If we lose sight of God's grace, we lose sight of the gospel. We lose sight of who God is and what God has done for each and every one who trusts in Jesus. We can't ever get to a place where we begin to think, you know, God accepts me, God loves me because I'm a pretty good person. Yeah, I have some character flaws, and I mess up from time to time, but overall, you know, in the cosmic balancing scale, I do more good than bad. Friends, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that we are in the category of verses 4, 5, and 6, and God, through his abounding, steadfast love, covers us and overflows his grace upon us so that we can enter his presence. And David is able to enter God's presence and he responds through worship. He says, I bow down toward your holy temple in, in the fear of you. He responds to worship, but he also asks God to continue to lead him. Lead me in the way of your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. David acknowledges that although he's in the presence of God, although he's in communion with God, although he's in relationship with God, he needs God's power, God's help, God's assistance to walk in the way of righteousness, to to follow God and follow the way God has ordered reality. David has enemies that are trying to knock him off the path, that are trying to distract him from God, that are are calling into question whether God's really good to him calling into question God's character, or maybe calling into question David, and whether David's really in in relationship with God or not. We have similar enemies that we face. We face our, our own sinfulness, right? Our own flesh that tempts us and, and distracts us from pursuing God's righteousness. And then we have enemies outside of us that, that try to tempt us, whether it's... Well, we call the world the flesh, our own flesh, or the devil, right? We, ha- we have these enemies that, that are trying to, to pull us away from the path. And we need God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, to continue to, to lead us, to guide us, to convict us, to use this time here to shape us and form us into the way of righteousness, in the way of following God, calling on God to make his way straight. So it's important to, to come and gather together on Sundays. 
That's part of why we gather here. I mean, it's good to, to, to do good works like what you guys are doing after church. That's a great thing. It's good to commune and, and to connect and to have a community where, where you're, you're not only friends, but family. That you love each other and care for one another. But God is also doing something in this time as we look at his word and as we allow his spirit to shape us and, and convict us. To renew us. So my encouragement to you would, would not be to, to let Sunday service, Sunday gathering be out of convenience. You know, we don't have nothing better going on on Sunday, so let's go to church. Make it a priority so that God can use this time, not only on Sunday, but as you spend time with him during the week, to lead you into righteousness. David describes what these enemies are. He says in verse 9 and verse 10. And also the consequence, the ultimate consequence of these enemies. He says they're liars. There's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is a destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Paul actually picks up on, on uh, verse 9 there. He quotes it in Romans chapter 3, 14, where where the Apostle Paul in this letter to the churches in Rome is making a case that God's people of the Old Testament, the Jews, and everybody else, which the Bible calls Gentiles, are all in the same stead under God without Jesus Christ. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As we saw in the call to confession. Every living person outside of Christ is in that category. So Paul uses that from Roman or from Psalm 5, 9. And David is in such a situation that he is asking God to work on his behalf in verse 10 and say, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them by their own counsels, because of their abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. David is talking about the consequences of turning our back on God, what, what some people call <clears throat> idolatry or cosmic treason. By turning their back on God, going their own ways, they, by their lives and declaration, are saying they have no need for God. And, and there's a consequence to that. God is good. God is abounding in steadfast love. God is also just. And the consequence is that God casts them out, that God ultimately deals with sin, that there is a judgment that takes place. But we also serve a God who hates sin enough, hates evil enough to do something about it. And that's what makes the gospel so good is that Jesus Christ, who came in our flesh, fully God yet fully man, stood in our place and took the abundance of our transgressions, took our rebellion and placed it upon himself and experienced this casting out in our stead. Jesus Christ was not only cast out of the city when he was crucified, but he experienced forsakenness by God, where he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing 
this idea of a separation, of a casting out from the presence of God. And he did that in our stead. That if you trust in Jesus, Jesus ha- has paid for all of our transgressions so that we can be in the abundance of a steadfast love. And we see in the, these final two verses here that God is the personal protection equipment. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. He's protection, verse 11. He's a shield, verse 12. He's a covering, verse 12. God promises to protect those who are in his grace. And there's a response. This is why we sing in church, by the way. Part of the reason why we sing. It's a joyful response to what God has done for us. We take refuge in you and we rejoice. We sing for joy. We exult in him. There's this concept here of, of covering, of protection. And that's what Jesus Christ gives his people, is we have a covering, we have a protection. It's called the righteousness of Christ. Christ, who stood in our place to take our sins, also obeyed in our stead. That when Jesus came to earth, he obeyed the Father perfectly, without fail. He endured temptations in the wilderness, without fail. He endured mocking in our place without retribution. So we have this righteous protection that Jesus Christ gives us. And we receive it by faith and by grace. That's the protection we have. The personal protection equipment is God himself offering to protect his people from ultimate destruction. This is why we can take great comfort in in the good news of the gospel. This is why we can look at passages like Romans 8, which says this, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That protection we have is something given to us by God, received in faith. It's a gift. Of grace. So when you struggle, when you feel like the walls are caving in, you have enemies that, that are attacking you, whether it's your own flesh, the world, or the devil himself, where do you turn? Do you roll up your sleeves and say, all right, I need to get after it, I need to work a little harder, I need to do a little bit more? Or do you turn the God of grace. I encourage you to to find your refuge. Find your protection. Find your shield. Find your refuge. Not in yourself. Don't look inward. Look outward. Look to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Call to him and ask for his grace and his protection. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for This time in your word, we thank you for the opportunity to to gather together. Lord, I ask that you would further conform us into your image. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.